Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name is Taylor, and I'll be one of your hosts today. And as always, joining me is Tanner. Tanner, how you doing? I'm doing very well. I'm excited for our topic today. It's one we've been a little hesitant to do, I would say. It's 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 a big one, but I think we're ready. I think we're ready to do it. Um I think it's one that we've we've probably at some point said we wouldn't do this one. Right. But I think we have discussed it somewhat in the past. Like, how, how would we even go about doing it? And then we had a little helpful nudge from the <laughs> Spooky Science Sisters podcast. So right. uh, thanks to them. Also, check out their podcast. It's very cool. <laughs> Yeah, it's um, you know, it's kind of like the you figure like this is the TWA Flight 800 for for Black Box Down or or something. You know is what I mean? Is that the Lockerbie one? No, that's the one that crashed off of New York. Oh, okay. But uh, they were both 747s, so yeah, same plane. Oh, that was a Pan Am one at Lockerbie, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. The uh, that that would be the Titanic, and then the the TWAs, the Edmund Fitzgerald. There's my air incident knowledge coming in. <laughs> uh, but anyways, let's uh, what uh, what you've been doing, what you've been consuming, what you've been reading, watching, listening to. Um, in terms of reading, I most of my reading the last two weeks has been for this podcast. Yeah. Would you say you've been fully Fitzgerald pilled at this point? Yeah, it's been a lot of uh, I don't know. I I tried to get some good reading sessions in, but uh, really it was all just happening in fits and starts. <laughs> I hate it. So yeah, I read. I there's a a few books that I got my hands on for this. Uh, Frederick Stonehouse's book on it, you know, very pretty standard fare for the topic. Um, I think every shipwreck person has read that. Um, also, another one called Gales of November that I'll be referencing later on as we talk about it. Is that is that the one by the other Michael Schumacher? No, his is called Mighty Fits. That one I have okay. not cracked open yet. Although I'm, I'm that's like my dessert. I've loved his other book so much that I was going <laughs> to wait to read that one last. So yeah, um, aside from that, I started reading the second in the Captain Alatriste novels. Nice by Arturo Perez Riverte. I like those as I, I like to read those in Spanish because it's good practice. Um, it's a it's a historical topic. Yeah, they're set during the. 30 years war slash 80 years war. Um, and they follow this Spanish captain, Alatriste. So it's a historical topic that I, I know fairly well already, but then mm-hmm. it gives me a chance to learn a lot of new vocabulary that I didn't know before and just good reading practice in nice. uh, a second language. So that's, that's a bit fun. Uh, last thing I'll throw into my reading is that uh, just today, actually, I started cracking open a book called uh, Harp Song for a Radical. Uh, by Marguerite Young. It's a biography of Eugene Debs. Okay, cool. I'm excited to get more into that. Nice. How about you? What are you up to? Um, well, we have been super busy around here. Um, had a birthday party for my twins today. So the last few days have kind of been all set up around getting all that situated and and then doing all that. So it hasn't left me a ton of time mm-hmm. to do things. But um I don't know. I had a little time to uh, crack open a new book. Uh, I started a book called The Indifferent Stars Above. It uh, mm-hmm. follows the Donner Party, actually. It follows uh, one member in particular, Sarah Graves, and kind of mm-hmm. her experiences as a 21-year-old in that environment and and everything that they went through. You know, I just can't get enough with uh, n- enough tragedy with shipwrecks that I have to move on land. They called them prairie schooners. So, you know, it's basically the that same counts. thing. Yeah, it yeah. counts. 
Was that inspired by uh, American Hauntings? It was. I listened to the Donner Party um, episodes of American Hauntings, and I highly recommend it because I think Troy Taylor may be one of the best like spoken word narrative people Mm -hmm. out there doing it. It was it absolutely hooked me and I had to consume more. So I've I've fully gone down the Donner Party rabbit hole now. I was posted on Twitter about it, actually. I can't believe that, like, where it all happened, like, literally where the cabin stood. <laughs> yeah, There's a Taco Bell and McDonald's now. And, like, I'm not saying it like, oh, it's a horrible thing. Like, hey, progress happens, right? But, like, just kind of the absurdity that there's a ta- – I can get a crunch wrap and then go walk over and see where people starved. Like, it's it's pretty crazy. Eating a zesty cruncherito on top of where – People ate each other. <laughs> I mean, I guess to be fair, like you can do that anywhere in Europe too, or in That's a lot true. of places in North America, but it is just kind of funny to see Donner Lake Taco Bell. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, yeah, that's what I've been doing. Um, tragedy all around. <laughs> cool. Are you ready to talk about today's tragedy? I am. I saw a Twitter thread earlier about uh, do you like when podcasters talk for 15 minutes before the episode? Um, so I don't want to get pulled into uh, the discourse. <laughs> no, no, I'm I'm good for about five minutes and then I'm ready to move. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, I'm sure as you've gathered from the title of this episode, we're doing the thing. We are talking about the Edmund Fitzgerald. Big Fitz. Yeah. Um, just to start, today's episode will be a little different. Now, we're not going to focus on every intimate detail of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And we've kind of decided to take a different angle. Honestly, we don't feel like there's much we can add to the topic that's been so thoroughly covered. However, we would like to, you know, definitely explore the human element. Um, No other vessel has captured the public's imagination on the Great Lakes quite like the Fitz. Uh, She's been immortalized in song, print, and even it's become something of a cottage industry around the Great Lakes. Take one look at any local bookstore, gift shop, there's countless items that carry her name and image. Uh, shot glasses, t-shirts, blankets, and even a pretty tasty stout. <laughs> you know, what makes her story so different from the thousands of wrecks that lie in the cold waters of the lakes? I'm not sure that we can answer that in one podcast episode. You could write an entire doctoral thesis on this topic of how this became such a phenomenon. Mm-hmm. However, we can provide our thoughts as two people who have been profoundly influenced by this wreck and the cultural phenomenon that it became. And that's something I'm sure we share with so many of you that are listening. For so many people, this was kind of the gateway into shipwreck stuff. This and the Titanic, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's that's what got us here. And just kind of as a note, this will be a two-part episode. We kind of want to use part one to cover as much as possible in a coherent manner. And then part two, we're going to mop up some of the important things we missed and then spend some time focusing on crew members and other stakeholders that are, you know, around the story of the Fitzgerald. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think another thing with the in terms of how we decided to cover the episode, one of our big reluctances about covering this was, you know, how do you even cover it? There's so much stuff to do in a podcast. And I think that's one of the important things with kind of just saying we're going to cover this in two episodes Uh, Because, you know, kind of the whole premise of the podcast is, you know, we we like to find stories and and, and discuss things that we don't know about and maybe our listeners don't know about either and sort of elevate those and and get those a little bit more visible where they may not be. I kind of felt like, you know, if we made this a five, six, seven, ten part series, it's kind of just 
playing into that same imbalance that we're sort of trying to address. Right. So, yeah, it would kind of just be, uh, I don't know, antithetical to the podcast. Yeah. But at the same time, like we were saying before, I'm kind of acknowledging like it is different. It is a special wreck for so many people. Mm-hmm. And I kind of want to see, like, why? Why is that a yeah. thing? And we'll get into that. Um, however, I think we do, for the benefit of those, especially international listeners that may not know, if you're not from the Great Lakes region, uh, we still want to talk about the history and kind mm-hmm. of give a give a rundown of the Fitzgerald and, and its story. So with that, we'll kind of roll into it. Let's do this thing. All right. Uh, so the Edmund Fitzgerald was launched on June 7th, 1958 at River Rouge, Michigan for the Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company. That's kind of weird. It's it's owned by an insurance company. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was actually named for the president of that company. We've talked about this on previous episodes, but it's always strange when these when these ships get so ingrained uh, in the culture, like the Edmund Fitzgerald. Mm-hmm. We know them as the ship and you totally forget that there's a real person associated with this name that mm-hmm. it's actually named after. Yeah, it is. So it's, it's, it's always strange to, to, to me that detail of, Oh, it's just, you know, it's just named after a big insurance guy. Mm-hmm. So Northwestern mutual did not operate the vessel. However, she's leased to the Columbia transportation division of Ogle Bay Norton company based in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, so it's a little bit of a weird arrangement, but really, like Northwestern Mutual just sees this as a money-making opportunity, no different than investing in bonds or mutual funds or something mm-hmm. like that. It's just a money-making venture. They have a bunch of money laying around. What do we do with it? Yeah, I feel like that's good because insurance agents are notoriously bad at handling ships on the Great Lakes. <laughs> right. <laughs> so at the time of her launch, she held the title Queen of the Lakes as the largest vessel sailing the waters. She was 729 feet long, 75 feet wide, and had a 25-foot draft. Um, The Fitzgerald was an extremely productive vessel during her career on the lakes. She set a single trip record hauling 27,402 tons of iron ore during the 1969 season. And um, normally a trip from Superior, Wisconsin to Detroit, Michigan would take around five days. Um, Her destinations would vary and sometimes change even in route. Although Toledo, Ohio and Detroit, Michigan were among the most common along with Cleveland, Ohio. You know, it's the typical trade that we see in these ore freighters. You take freight from the, you take uh, iron ore from the West and bring it to the East where all the, you know, uh, steel plants are and stuff like that. It's, it's Mm -hmm. a pretty normal arrangement. All of this backstory brings us to a couple of the most famous days on the lakes. That brings us to the afternoon of November 9th, 1975. Captained by Ernest M. McSorley, the fifth sleeve superior bound for Zug Island near Detroit. Weather conditions were pleasant at the time of departure, although there was a storm predicted to pass south of the vessel's intended track. Surely the crew is aware, you know, sailing on the Great Lakes in November is always a bit treacherous. You know, even in the best of conditions, that can quickly change. Uh, A few hours into her journey, uh, the Fitzgerald is joined by another now legendary vessel, the Arthur M. Anderson. (laughs) Um, She would accompany the Doom Freighter in her final hours. I would say no other freighter has had her legacy built up more by a shipwreck than the Arthur M. Anderson. I feel like she's attracted kind of a cult following around the Great Lakes areas now. Right. She kind of plays the role that, um, is it the Carpathia? Yeah. Plays yeah. In, the, in the Titanic saga where uh, kind of fame by association with this um, other ship. The Anderson is one that even 
even for me, before I was even reading about any of this shipwreck stuff before we started the show, the Arthur M. Anderson was still a ship that I knew mm-hmm. because of this story. And yeah, like it, it's a cool thing. I know for my fairly brief time living in Superior, it was still cool to see her come in and out of port and everything. Like it, mm-hmm. you felt like you were, you know, seeing a little bit of history and, mm-hmm. and feeling a little connection to a story that you cared about. So it's worth noting that there's another vessel loading in Superior, the Wilfred Sykes. And she departs about two hours after the Fitzgerald. However, its captain, um, he decides to take a more northerly protected route as he believes the storm would be directly in the path of the vessels. So, you know, it's it's one of those things where it's captain's discretion, right? You know, one captain's not afraid of a storm. The other guy's like, hey, I'm going to play it a little more cautious. If you're the captain of the El Faro, you just ignore everything and sail right <laughs> into it. And a little bit about that, um, about that route choice mm-hmm. I was reading about. I don't know if this I don't know if we address this later in the notes. Um but yeah, talking about that northerly routes, you know, along the Canadian shore being the more protected route. It's not the most mm-hmm. direct if you're going from Duluth to Sault Ste. Marie, but because of the way that the weather comes down uh from Canada, um if you're on that northern shore, you're obviously more protected whereas if you're on the southern shore, the Michigan shore, the weather and those waves have the entire lake to build up. Right. And basically smash you against the upper peninsula i was kind of interested in learning about that the you know the different routes that people are taking and the different reasons why yeah that's super interesting and just seeing the kind of the the mental calculus that goes into that and the decision making Mm -hmm. um so the crew of the sykes would be able to listen to the radio traffic between the fitzgerald and the anderson as the hours rolled by that night so they're kind of a you know observer of this whole thing Conditions would continue to worsen as the morning of November 10th rolled around. Forecasts were now predicting winds between 40 and 58 miles per hour and worsening sea conditions. By the afternoon of the 10th, the Anderson was recording sustained wind speeds of 58 miles an hour and beginning to uh, experience snow and reduced visibility. This actually caused the Anderson to lose sight of the Fitzgerald, which was around 16 miles ahead of them. Uh, the vessels would remain in radio contact with Mick Sorley of the Fitzgerald stating at 3.30 that he had developed a list and lost two vent covers along with some fence railing. So, you know, he's taking damage at this point, essentially. Mm-hmm. It's not great, you know what I mean? But it's also things that happen in these conditions. So it's it's something worth noting, but not something worth necessarily, you know, declaring an emergency right. over. As the day progressed, the Fitzgerald and Anderson attempted to reach Whitefish Bay and the relative shelter that it would provide. However, the situation on the Fitzgerald had grown even more perilous. And if you think about it, this is very similar to the story of the Myron. This is happening in almost the same place, and they're trying to do the same thing. They're trying to get to that shelter of Whitefish Bay and get out of the worst of Mm -hmm. this storm. Next, McSorley reported that he had a bad list and neither one of his radars were functioning. And then he says something that I think is pretty chilling, actually, considering how experienced of a captain he mm-hmm. is. He says, I'm taking heavy seas over the deck in one of the worst seas I've ever been in. Mm-hmm. You know, most captains and mariners in general aren't going to, you know, they don't want to seem scared of the sea or the weather and especially a ship's captain, mm-hmm. right? Like he's not going to want to broadcast that, you know, this is something I haven't experienced or I'm afraid of this. So for a man who's as experienced as himself to be saying this over the, 
uh, radio, mm-hmm. it had to be truly terrifying. Yeah, and we'll talk more about McSorley himself in part two when we get more into the you know personal details and stuff. Um, but I think he had been a captain for something like forty years, or uh, not a captain, but um, but sailing on the lakes for One something like forty years. And yeah, for someone with that much experience to say this is the worst I've ever seen, that's quite something. Yeah, that that means something. <laughs> Around this time, the Anderson reports winds of 67 miles an hour gusting up to 86. So essentially, like, hurricane force winds. Like, this is this is a bad storm. Uh, along with seas of 25 feet and some rogue waves up to 35 feet high. Mm. 35 feet. Just massive seas. Uh, around 7.10 p.m., the Anderson would check in with the Fitzgerald for the last time. And when asked how his ship was faring, McSorley would utter some of the most famous words in Great Lakes history. We are holding our own. This would be the final communication from the vessel. Uh, Around 10 minutes later, the Arthur Manderson was no longer able to track the Fitzgerald on her radar. In the time since that last communication, Captain Jesse Cooper of the Arthur Manderson, along with first mate Morgan Clark, had been attempting to reestablish contact and identify the location of the fits with no success. Considering the possibility that their own radio was malfunctioning, the Anderson attempted to contact other vessels in the area, one of which was the William C. Ford anchored in Whitefish Bay. The Ford responded that they could hear the Anderson loud and clear. The Ford also confirmed that the Fitzgerald was nowhere to be seen on their radar. First mate Clark adjusted the radar while Captain Cooper continued on the radio speaking with Captain Albert Yacovetti of the Swedish ship Nanfri. The Fitzgerald wasn't showing up on the Nanfri's radar either, though the captain reported he was struggling to identify anything due to the high levels of sea return. Uh, sea return is what happens when high waves interfere with the travel of radar waves to prevent images from being clearly obtained. So that tells you how high these seas are. You can't even use your instruments in these seas. Yeah, that was something I was interested to read about because I I guess I wasn't aware that that could happen. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's not something you think about. Like, how, how big are these waves? Actually, this also answers a question from a long time ago when we watched the Poseidon Adventure and I asked if a wave would even show up on radar. And I guess the answer is kind of yes. Yes, it would. (laughs) It definitely will. (laughs) Quoting from first mate Morgan Clark, describing these first minutes of the search. It was the strangest feeling I've ever had. Everything told us Fitz had gone down. The radar couldn't pick her up. There was no answer when we called her on the radio. And no matter how hard we looked, we could not spot her lights. Yet we couldn't believe it. She couldn't be gone. Around 7.39 p.m., Captain Cooper radios the Coast Guard, but was asked to call back on a different channel. At 7.54, he successfully reconnected with the Coast Guard and expressed his concern for the Fitzgerald, but his concerns were largely brushed aside. He was instead asked to keep an eye out for a small 16-foot craft that had gone missing in the area. I can't imagine being in a 16-foot craft in those seas. Yeah, I would definitely be hoping that someone was looking for me. I, I, if I was if I was Captain Cooper, I'd be like, yeah, they're gone. <laughs> <laughs> About halfway through the eight o'clock hour, Cooper radioed the Sioux Control again, saying, I am very concerned with the welfare of the steamer Edmund Fitzgerald. He was right in front of us, experiencing a little difficulty. He was taking on a small amount of water, and none of the upbound ships have passed him. I can see no lights as before. And I don't have him on radar. I just hope he didn't take a nosedive. 
That's pretty chilling. Like, imagine trying to, like, convince the authorities, like, no, no, you need to care about this. Well, this is, it's so, and I think you uh, chose a good word with chilling. First of all, it's, it's so rare for, you know, these situations for these captains, um, these officers to express such direct concern um, Mm -hmm. about this. Also, just to have, you know, an utterance that's this long for this purpose is pretty out of the ordinary, just based on the stuff that we've read. We've read quite a few of uh, things like this for the show. And yeah, the amount of detail, just the, the length of time he spends talking about this to really convey like there is a problem here for sure. Mm-hmm. Right. At about 1030, the Coast Guard requested for other ships in the area to assist searching for the Fitzgerald. So at this point, finally, we're getting some commitment to say that, yeah, something's wrong. We need to find it. The Arthur M. Anderson continued in her efforts to locate the Fitzgerald and was soon joined in the search by the William Clay Ford. The upbound vessels who had passed the area declined to turn around out of concern for their own safety. So that's kind of our brief synopsis of what happened. If you want more detail, there's ample sources (laughs) out there to go find that. And, you know, I don't want to spend the entire hour long show, you know, reading from a book. I think that's boring. You can do that Mm -hmm. on your own or there's plenty of other resources out there for you. But yeah, that's kind of the story of what happened. And I think we'll we'll expand on some theories, um, potential explanations, and then kind of get into some talk about the cultural phenomenon that is the Edna Fitzgerald. And in the in part two, there are a couple things about the search and the discovery of the wreck that we'll get into. But uh, yeah, this is one of those stories where kind of the final result isn't the interesting part because that's right. kind of very well known. Arguably, the most captivating element of the story is the mystery of what exactly happened. Right. A lot of the stories that we cover on the show, you know, they're from the 1800s, the early 1900s, you know, before the advent of communication and tracking systems that are really integral to modern shipping um, industry. When we talk about stories from 1850 or 1900, it's a lot more plausible that a ship can just disappear. Yeah, it still kind of has that age of like mystery around it that kind of I could call it like the golden age mm-hmm. of shipwrecks, right? Like it's it's still it's a very manual job. It's, you know, wooden mm-hmm. vessels and not being able to track storms. It's, it's kind it's of an, an accepted risk of the trade of, hey, you know, sometimes people sail off into the Atlantic and disappear. Never see them again. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good way of putting it that like in the 1800s, I think most sailors are aware that like I may not come mm-hmm. back from this. And I don't think that's the case. I think most people today expect to come home when they go out on a voyage. Right. So, yeah, it kind of brings us to to our story here. You know, in 1975, you've got radar, you've got radio. And to top it off, these are ships that are in pretty close proximity to each other. Right. Yeah. They're not like isolated out in the middle of the yeah, ocean. This is this is a heavily trafficked area with tons of ships, all with this, you know, modern technology. How does a ship like the Fitzgerald just vanish? from the surface of the lake um, is the truly enduring mystery of this. So a couple of the things that come up when you read about this, obviously there's a lengthy coast guard report about this, um, a Marine casualty report and the conclusion arrived at by the coast guard in that official report is as follows. The most probable cause of the sinking of the SS Edmund Fitzgerald was the loss of buoyancy and stability 
which resulted from massive flooding of the cargo hold. The flooding of the cargo hold took place through ineffective hatch closures as boarding seas rolled along the spar deck. The flooding, which began early on the 10th of November, progressed during the worsening weather and sea conditions and increased in volume as the vessel lost effective freeboard, finally resulting in such a loss of buoyancy and stability that the vessel plunged in the heavy seas. Reading that, I think the use of the word ineffective is interesting in discussing the hatch covers. Mm-hmm. Because there's two main reasons a hatch closure might be ineffective. Right. Uh, one of those is just a loss of water tightness uh, due to either damage or just a you know a lack of routine maintenance. Um, we've talked about it before with these bulk carriers, how those hatch covers um, and the the areas around them pretty often get damaged in the loading process. Right. Uh, we actually talked about that a lot with the uh, with the whalebacks, with them getting damaged by mm-hmm. the cranes, uh, leading to some of these hatch issues. You know, the report from the Coast Guard notes that the required maintenance was not being regularly performed. And it goes on to note that the Fitzgerald was scheduled for repairs to her hatch covers and combings during her upcoming winter layup. So it was something that they were in the process of getting on top of, but obviously never got the mm-hmm. chance. Yeah, I mean, I think it's impossible to ignore the hatch covers in this story. They leak. Like, it's what hatch covers do. You know, water finds a way. So many other stories, you know, have this as the cause of a loss for one of these large bulk carriers that just because this story is so well known doesn't mean it's any Mm -hmm. different. I, I just, I don't know. To me, this is the one that makes the most sense. So we talked about the, you know, possible mechanical issues. But there's also another reason that hatch covers might not be effective. Mm -hmm. Quoting here from pages 93 and 94 of the Coast Guard report. Whether all the cargo hatch clamps were properly fastened cannot be determined. In the opinion of the Marine Board, if the clamps had been properly fastened, any damage, disruption, or dislocation of the hatch covers would have resulted in damage to or distortion of the clamps. But the underwater survey showed that only a few of the clamps were damaged. It's concluded that these clamps were the only ones of those seen which were properly fastened to the covers and that there were too few of these and too many unfastened or loosely fastened clamps to provide an effective closure of the hatches. Mm -hmm. So this brings us to the, the worst part of any of these types of podcast shipwrecks uh, plane crashes and that's the possibility of human error contributing to right an accident yeah that's i mean it's nothing you never want to sit there and blame the people who were killed in an accident say well Mm -hmm. you did that wrong there's your problem but it's also like it's something you have to look at in these reports and when you're doing these kind of things is that human error is so often involved Mm -hmm. in this yeah so those those are kind of the two possibilities there either way Regardless of why those hatch covers are not keeping the water out, water getting into the cargo hold of a ship like the Fitzgerald is going to have pretty catastrophic consequences. Right. The cargo holds uh, on board the Fitzgerald, you know, they're not separated by any sort of watertight bulkhead. None of this flooding Mm -hmm. is going to be localized if it happens. In Stonehouse's book, he describes it really well, uh, talking about the cargo hold as essentially just a big open expanse, like a warehouse. Uh, it is divided up by things kind of like bulkheads, but it's more like mesh 
than a watertight right. seal because they want the water to be able to move back and forth in order to pump it out. Right. So, yeah, if you start taking water, you're taking water, you know, all the way up and down this vessel. And then our, our good friend, the free surface effect becomes a thing. Does it count as free surface effect if it's going through a bunch of iron ore? Uh, I would I semi would say free so. surface effect. I, I would say, I mean, anytime it's sloshing back and yeah. forth, right? Like you're, you're basically getting that those same yeah. forces. A physics person maybe can tell us more about that. Yeah, that's true. We, we are not physics people. Also with these cargo holds, there's no system here for monitoring flooding in the cargo hold. Right. Which again, this is in the seventies, but we, we talked about issues like this in even El Faro, uh, having issues with not, mm-hmm not having monitors for these things. Uh, so only a visual check would have revealed any flooding of the cargo hold. And that wouldn't really have been possible in a freighter that's fully loaded until the water was above the level of the cargo. <laughs> at which point... That's not good. At which point, if the water gets that high, it probably doesn't matter because you're already doomed. Right. There's That's not even going to be helpful uh, at that point. Uh, So obviously, anytime we have these stories where there's a plausible chance of human error, you know, those who are in close proximity to the case often search for other possibilities, you know, that could have brought down the ship and not just in cases of possible human error. I think any good investigation pursues all possible angles to see uh, just so that in the future, nothing's overlooked. A great example that we've covered on the show, uh, an episode that you did was the Derbyshire in episode 40, Mm -hmm. uh, where the original blame. Uh, you know, from the company essentially is, well, uh, forgot to close the hatches, forgot to secure the ship in this typhoon, and uh, it sank. Um, and it was really just through that really persistent pressure from the family association that, you know, later investigations were done. When the ship was found in 1994, the ultimate conclusion was structural failure involving a ventilation pipe cover at the bow. And this, you know, cleared the crew of any fault in the sinking. So, yeah, I mean, right. it, it's good to pursue those other possibilities because you, you don't want to put the blame somewhere that it, it shouldn't be going. So, yeah, with the Fitzgerald, obviously, there's other theories for her sinking as well. Um, the theory that kind of has the it's kind of in second place in terms of how much hold it has in the shipwreck community, I guess, uh, is that of shoaling. Um, So this is the theory that was advanced by the Lake Carriers Association, uh, sort of as a repost to the Coast Guard's theory involving the hatch covers. Uh, So the idea here is that Fitzgerald struck a shoal without realizing it and opened up a hole in her keel, leading to the flooding of the cargo hold. Um, So kind of the same result, but in a different way. Either way, you've got the cargo hold taking on water and sinking the ship. How it got there is really the thing that's in dispute. Right. These two are interesting. Frederick Stonehouse, in his book on the topic, he kind of discusses both theories. And, you know, he he doesn't reject the shoaling idea. Um, he says, you know, it's a it's a perfectly valid, perfectly possible thing. But there's just no reason to favor it over something that we know is an issue. It has been an issue on ships right. before, um, as the Coast Guard points out with the maintenance. You know, we know that it wasn't, you know, up to where it you know, potentially could have been. There, there's no reason basically to complicate this with an additional theory if there's just no direct evidence for it. Right. And that's how I feel, too. Like, is shoaling a possible valid theory? Sure. 
I don't think it happened. We know the hatch covers are an issue. It's just the thing that makes the most sense, right? It's the simplest Mm -hmm. explanation. I think you also have to look at who's putting forward that theory. I mean, everyone, for the most part, has, you know, their own motivations. Mm -hmm. And the Lake Carriers Association doesn't want it to say, well, the crew didn't do their job. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they have motivation for that to, they want to promote safety on the lakes and, you know, say how safe the industry is. It's sort of, you know, looking like the Marine Electric where the company says, well, maybe she shoaled. Mm-hmm. And, you know. Right. Yeah, that that's a that's a connection I hadn't made. But, yeah, we've kind of been in a situation like this before. Yeah. And, you know, not to say that the Lake Carriers Association's acting in the same way the company was. The company was trying to get out mm-hmm. of, you know, blame for shoddy maintenance. <laughs> but the Lake Carriers Association does have some, you know, drive to want to say that, you know, well, it wasn't the crew's fault. You know, we're the, it's safe on the lakes, you know. I want to say this was also Stonehouse. It may have been someone else pointing out that in a way it, it sort of lends credence to the Coast Guard theory in that if they're blaming this potentially on, you know, a lack of maintenance and inspection, it almost makes them look worse. Right. Because what are they doing? (laughs) What does the Coast Guard stand to gain by saying that this ship wasn't being inspected? Um, And I mean, we saw that again with the Marine Electric. mm -hmm. The, you know, the, how many processes the Coast Guard had that were deficient mm-hmm. that allowed that incident to happen. Right. And possibly sort of the, the same thing here, you know, like the Fitzgerald wasn't an old vessel yet, especially not by Great Lakes standards, but you still have regular maintenance. And these vessels go through a lot of strain and stress and what they do, like, you know, years and years of wear and tear still have to be cared for mm-hmm. on the lakes. Another thing in terms of her maintenance and upkeep, um, like you said, she was still relatively young for a great lakes ship one of the things that interested me that i hadn't been aware of before and i think with more specifics can also go into this in the second episode but um was about her load lines being changed Mm -hmm. throughout her career being raised so that she could take on more cargo i think it was something like four or five times that it happened Mm -hmm. you know with no with no major changes to her to her design. So essentially just changing how much she can carry without significantly changing her from when she was built. So that obviously lowers your freeboard. And then if, you know, heavy seas and potentially faulty hatch covers are a problem that sets you up for failure. Absolutely. There's a couple other theories that, that came up. Obviously, if you, if you've listened to the Gordon Lightfoot song, uh, where he he lists out some of those. He says uh, she <laughs> might have broke up. She might have capsized. She may have broke deep into water. And so the idea of her breaking up on the surface is is one that, you know, was put forth. I mean, she is in two pieces at the bottom of Lake Superior, but that doesn't really fit with the way that things happened with her sinking. I, I think you had some more detail about that, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I mean, my only thought was breaking up on the surface... Um you would think there would have been some sort of a distress call mm-hmm. at that point. It, it's like the theory that gives it a little more time. Mm-hmm. And honestly, the same thing with the shoaling, unless, um, you know, it's just that slow trickle till it mm-hmm. loses positive buoyancy and just goes down. But breaking up on the surface in particular, to me, I, I just don't find it likely because there would have been a distress call. Um, you know, we often see vessels that are splitting up and, you know, they're, they're able to make a call. Right. Particularly if, you know, in this bad weather, like you would have someone ready to do that, mm-hmm. you would think. Yeah. So there's that idea. And also that kind of connects with some 
what would have been relatively recent wrecks at the time with the Bradley, the Daniel J. Morrell ships that did essentially snap in half at the surface mm-hmm. and, and go down that way. But yeah, there doesn't not really any support for that idea. Yeah, there's there's another theory put forward called the Bergner theory, and it involves uh, the ship having a faulty keel um, just, you know, at a from an engineering standpoint, again, doesn't seem to be super well supported. Um, I mean, so all in all, uh, most of the evidence lies with the hatch covers. The wreck itself is pretty well embedded in the mud, you know, very hard to access and and, and really see a lot of the stuff. But um, but yeah, that's kind of, I guess, where we are in terms of uh, theories for why this happened. So kind of shifting gears a little bit, let's let's move into the next phase here. I do just want to say that it's storming pretty decently here and it's had some good peals of thunder. Ah, so you're kind of like in, in the mood for this story. It's appropriate. <laughs> I think uh-huh. the old cook just came on deck and said, fellas, it's too rough to feed me. <laughs> Palouche says feed me. <laughs> so let's kind of shift gears here a little bit and talk about like, the next thing. And kind of like why we're doing this episode, because mm-hmm. honestly, up until this point, it's been kind of boilerplate stuff that you would get in anything. Edmund Fitzgerald. Right. Let's talk about the commercialization and legacy of the Edmund Fitzgerald in pop culture. First and foremost, I think we could both agree we'd be remiss to not acknowledge that we are a podcast which talks about tragedies and shipwrecks weekly, and we have a Patreon where we ask for money. <laughs> so although we have fun with these topics, you know, we do attempt to bring a certain amount of decorum and respect to the human side of these stories. Do you have any other thoughts there or anything you wanted to add kind of where you you lie with that? Yeah, I mean, it is it is one of those things where it um I think that on that topic, you know, we we do try to bring out some positives as much as possible from from all of them. I think that is one of the the things that we strive for is, you know, what what does this story tell us? And that's one of the things with, you know, every shipwreck is different. It, they all tell a different story. And I think that's one of the reasons that we tend to focus on the personal side of things when we can. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we like to cover the history um, the context around these wrecks, you know, before we talk about them, because, yeah, there's there's always more to the story than just a cut and dry mechanical, you know, what went wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's usually human elements involved. Um, there's business elements involved. I guess my question for you is how how do we avoid and especially in one like the Edmund Fitzgerald, how do we avoid kind of that obscene true crime podcast trap. I mean, that true crime is a podcast genre that, I mean, honestly, it's kind of made the podcast, you know, field what it is Mm -hmm. due to its popularity, but also it's one of the just absolutely worst genres of podcast. Just some like truly gross things happen in some of these true crime podcasts. I guess I would say that like, I don't, I don't listen to a ton of true crime. I guess I would say that like, yes, there are great, well done, true crime podcast but it's i don't know it's probably the genre that has the most bad stuff in it right and yeah i guess putting it in that context it it kind of does help to sort of frame what we try to do here and yeah for me i i feel like we try not to focus too much on the the gruesomeness of it because despite the sort of romantic aspect with which shipwrecks are portrayed there's pretty horrendous things happening, right? It's not a noble way to die, you know, and any more so than anything else. 
and it's it's pretty horrifying. So I think one of those elements is we we try not to emphasize the the goriness too much. Yeah, I think anytime you you start getting into that stuff, anytime you start leaning into exploitation, yeah, um, versus documentation, I, I think you run into a, an issue. Yeah, and I, I think it really does come down to like what, um, why do we do this? What do we want to get out of it? Um, what do we want to share with people? And it is those human stories that are, I think, of the most interest to us, and mm-hmm. and hopefully also to the listeners. Um, Absolutely, it's it's one thing that we can provide you know we're not engineers uh, but we are humans and so we can talk about some of those aspects of it yeah um so digging a little deeper into the fitzgerald let's let's talk about some of these factors that go into why the fitzgerald you know kind of has that legendary status that it has today why is it on fridge magnets Mm -hmm. and christmas ornaments and shot glasses and afghans and afghans which i think i still have you have that somewhere i think think. I i think i do um, I have a Christmas ornament. So, I mean, I'm as guilty as anyone as, as being part of the, the big Edmund Fitzgerald industrial complex. Big fits, they call it. Big fits. So, you know, I think part of it is she's still a young modern vessel when she goes down. Uh, she sinks at a time when shipwrecks aren't common. Uh, you kind of touched on some of them a minute ago. The Daniel J. Morrell sunk in 66, breaking in half on the surface and leaving only one survivor. And the previous year, the Cedarville had sunk after a collision in the Mackinac Straits. We did cover the Cedarville and that one's almost like an outlier because you, you can't really blame the ship for that one. You, you, <laughs> right. you kind of do have to blame the captain. Yeah, that, that is true. Um, and then the Carl D. Bradley had sunk in 1958 under similar circumstances to the Morel. So, you know, there's some shipwrecks around this time, but it's not commonplace. It's not, you know, 1890, 1900 on the Great Lakes where, Hey, another body washed up this week. I wonder what ship he's from. Mm-hmm. It's it's different than that. It, it's something that is notable in the sense that it doesn't happen very often. Instead of being notable because, oh, we have to go look for some people again. Mm-hmm. Also, kind of the elephant in the room. It's impossible to ignore the role that Gordon Lightfoot's song, The Wreck of the Ed Fitzgerald, had on the legacy of the vessel. Like so many of you that are listening to this podcast right now, Listening to that song had a huge role in shaping my interest in shipwrecks. I can still remember the first time I heard it. I was probably eight-ish years old, sitting in the parking lot of a strip mall in Westchester, Ohio, while my mom ran an errand, and I was in the car with you and our dad. And I remember it being on the radio, and I remember him saying, oh, this is a, this is a song about a shipwreck. And I was hooked, <laughs> just absolutely hooked. So that song is released in 1976, and Lightfoot was inspired to write the song after reading an article about the vessel's loss in Newsweek magazine. Um, did you have a little bit more to add about that? Well, more of a question. I, I've heard the detail that he was prompted to do it because he read that article and the name of the ship was spelled wrong. Huh. And I actually don't know that. Again, I don't know if that's accurate, but at least the what I remember hearing was that he kind of kind of saw that. And he he felt that it was he felt that it just it just wasn't right for, you know, these, you know, 29 men and their ship to be sort of misremembered, you know, even in a, a relatively small way, but saying we can at least put through the effort to you know s- spell spell the ship right um, and kind of right. got him yeah. got him thinking about it and, and wanting to share the story more. And 
we would certainly say he was successful in doing that. Yes, he was. <laughs> so that song would reach number two on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart. And it's truly odd to think that a six-minute folk song could be such a smash hit on mm-hmm. the radio, even kind of during the time where folk music is a little more popular than it even is now. The song doesn't even have a chorus. Like, there's no chorus in that song. Just a guitar riff. Yeah, like, no- nothing about that song tells you this is a radio hit. Right. And just even the length. Like, you know, radio stations don't like to play six-minute songs. Mm-hmm. There's a reason every popular song is two and a half minutes. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, just the fact that this had such an impact. There's no songs written about El Faro. Uh, Doja Cat hasn't done that yet. Yeah, and the fact that it, it still has this hold on people, it's one of those songs that I feel like the first time you hear it, like you just described, it really does grab you. Yeah, it has that, you know, kind of that Scottish or Irish lament kind of feel to it. It just immediately it feels kind of like a like a funeral song mm-hmm. or something. Like it, it, you just know it's sad, even just hearing the music. But it's also kind of captivating. It kind of invites you in to come hear this story. And I mean, not to mention he's one of the greatest storytellers through music that's ever lived. Mm-hmm. Um, listen to any of his other work, and you'll know that you know this. It wasn't by chance that he wrote this song. Right. He's very talented. We were both actually fortunate enough to see him play live at one point, and that is truly a cool experience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which honestly, like we kind of thought would be like one of his tours as he was kind of like winding down his performing career. But that was yeah. like, that was over 10 years ago, wasn't it? Uh, I think I, I think it was 2007. Hmm. Um, so yeah, um, fortunately, he is still going strong. <laughs> but, you know, it still does hold sway over people today, even people like ourselves who weren't born when the song came out. Um, even people younger than us. It's mm-hmm. cool to see you know, 20 somethings that, you know, we interact with in via social media that are into shipwrecks. And, you know, that song still is a captivating thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's an eerie, captivating song. It, it just perfect, perfectly captures those emotions of a shipwreck story, especially told from, you know, kind of a funeral point of view, a sad point of view. It's, it's different than some of the Stan Rogers songs where it's a little bit more of like, you know, I'm a sailor and I know that's part of the job. Mm -hmm. This is more of like the look at this tragedy that that happened. And isn't it sad? Yeah, it's it's a song that it really grips you. Um, It challenges you to skip it if you dare. (laughs) And yeah, it's it's one of those thanks to my Spotify algorithm. It it will pop up from time to time. And even if it's not something I've know a genre that I've been listening to, it's like, well, I know what I'm doing for six minutes now. Yeah, you sit down and listen when that song comes on. Right. Um, I think another interesting thing about it, it, it actually inspires another song, uh, the song Back Home in Derry. It's written by Irish freedom fighter and member of parliament, Bobby Sands, while he was uh, in prison in the maze. Mm. Uh, so the song's actually recorded by artist Christy Moore, and the melody is inspired by the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Mm. So just in case the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald wasn't sad enough for you, there is a another sad song. Um, it touches on the idea of transportation to Australia by um, the British over the Irish um, and everything, kind of the prison ships and things yeah, like that. Which we do have, we have bonus episodes about if you check out our Patreon. <laughs> so, yeah, I just think that's interesting too, that this song is powerful enough. And even just kind of the, the, the melody is, is strong enough that, you know, someone can hear that and think, I'll, I want to create something with that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. The, I, I will, the, the Christy Moore song is, very good. He's he's another person, another excellent uh, musical storyteller. So, yeah, I mean, I think where does that leave us? 
with the Edmund Fitzgerald? Like, what what do you think as far as you know today in popular culture? Where, where does that sit? I I mean, I, I did want to also talk about you know the song obviously sort of dominates the cultural space with the, the Edmund Fitzgerald. There was a play also called Ten November, mm-hmm. written by Stephen Dietz, I think is his name. I don't mm-hmm. know that much about theater stuff. But I checked out some of the music um, that it, it was made into a kind of like a soundtrack called Gales of November. Um, I was mm-hmm. checking out some of those some pretty good music um, inspired by inspired by the Ed Fitzgerald and kind of just the lakes in general. And I I was reading an article about it called Stephen Dietz, a playwright, sink or swim. His 10 November centers on 1975 ship disappearance. This is an article from 1989. And I wanted to point this out because he's kind of commenting on some of the things that are, I think, still part of the appeal of the story. We talked about, you know, this was at a time when we we don't think of shipwrecks happening in the 70s, even though they happen to this day. I mean, over the last few months, there's been several quite large ships that have sunk with casualties. You know, there was that Spanish one out in the Atlantic that, that sank with quite a few. They still are very much a part of the modern world, but they're, they're somewhat overlooked. We think of them as being older than they are. And in this, uh, there's a couple interesting things in this article. Uh, Dietz is talking here saying, quote, in the history of Lake Superior, no body has ever washed up on its shores, which is not true, <laughs> um, first <laughs> of all. But what it does is it, it kind of shows how much weight people put in this song. The song is, by and large, an accurate telling of the story, but people right. kind of take everything in it sometimes at face value. And, you know, the, the lake, it said, never gives up her dead. And it's like, while that is an overall truth about Lake Superior, it's not a 100% truth. Right. So it's an interesting, um, you know, the amount of authority given to this song. And then later, he talks about uh, kind of the, the timing of this. Uh, he says, when Dietz had first heard the Gordon Lightfoot song, he thought it referred to some ancient maritime disaster. <laughs> Quote, to realize that it happened the week after Squeaky Frome shot at Gerald Ford and when the pet rocks were out, placed it in an amazing context. Yeah, that is kind of crazy. Yeah, like it, it, he I think he says something very interesting there of if you think about what other things are going on in the world at this time, it it does seem a little bit anachronistic to we'll call them the lay person who who doesn't read about shipwrecks right yeah it it seems like like he said you know this seems like a an ancient story but it isn't it's a timeless story um that you know continues to happen but you know it takes a a true artist you know like a gordon lightfoot to to do something that really sticks with people like that and i think that's one of the you know real cool things about art is that it you know, it has the power to take something, you know, beyond whatever legs it might have mm-hmm. in culture and and really just supercharge it and can keep it going with other generations. I think, you know, why are people talking about this on a podcast? What, like 50 years after it happened? Right. You know, there's there's so many other wrecks, uh, ones that we've talked about with a lot more casualties um, or, you know, bigger vessels or vessels that cost more money. Why Why is this the one that we continue to talk about? The thing I'm kind of, I hadn't thought about this until you were kind of saying that stuff. It's almost the Hamilton-fication 
of a historical object. Why is Alexander Hamilton any more noteworthy than any of the other founding fathers currently? Because Hamilton, the musical, which by and large is a fairly accurate telling of most of the events that went on, Mm -hmm. you know, because it became a cultural phenomenon. And all of a sudden, people cared about learning about the founding fathers and Alexander Hamilton's role in that may be a little inflated only because that's the entry point that so many have. And that's Mm -hmm. sort of the same thing we have here is so many people's entry point into shipwrecks is either the Titanic or the Evan Fitzgerald that those two shipwrecks get elevated so much when, you know, they're really no different than any other shipwreck, Mm -hmm. especially in the Fitzgerald's case. Unfortunately, I just had the mental image of Lin-Manuel Miranda singing I'm carrying this ore, but the conditions are poor. <laughs> Let's not give him any ideas. <laughs> I'm going to work on that, I think. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that that's a good point. It's it's a good parallel to draw. Very different pieces of art, but having kind of the same effect. You know, if if it gets a story out and it gets someone reading more about something, you could say it's a successful piece of historically themed art, which is a good thing. Yeah, um, I, I think it's it's so tempting to want to a little bit of like knee jerk gatekeeping of like, oh, you learned about this from the song, didn't you? It's like, well, most people learned about it from the song. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, subsequently, if, if it interested them, you know, learned about more stuff. Right. Like me. I mean, the Edmund Fitzgerald was one of the only shipwrecks I knew about before we started this podcast. And and now it's one of my favorite things to read about. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good way to kind of cap it off is honestly just to kind of with that idea that, um, like you said, art can spark that interest in history. You know, I think anytime there's a lot of human suffering and, you know, stories to tell, art has a way of filling in some of those gaps and maybe providing some meaning to that story that that isn't otherwise there. No matter if it was faulty hatch covers or a crew error that story has meaning now because of Gordon Lightfoot and his work. And that's built this whole industry around it that, you know, people want to be a part of that story. People want to know Mm -hmm. that story and it has, it's spawned this whole, this whole industry. So yeah, I think that's a great point that, that art in, and honestly, the best thing about art, right. Is that it can do things like that. Yeah. I was just thinking here, you know, sitting here with this, this crew list here and, you know, thinking about how, how strange it is a little bit, you know, what, you know, why are we talking about, uh, why, why do we know Eugene O'Brien, you know, mm-hmm. from Toledo? Why do we know Ernest McSorley? Why do we know, uh, Frederick Beecher from superior Wisconsin? And without this, this work that, that Gordon Lightfoot did to make this song and make it a, a piece of pop culture that probably doesn't happen. We're, we're probably not talking about this ship. I mean, Maybe we are. It's a shipwreck podcast. Maybe it's one that we dig up, uh, you know, somewhere from, you know, in our research. But it isn't the cultural phenomenon that it's become. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I guess overall we talked about sort of the commercialization of it. And, yeah, there's parts of it that seem over the top. But at the same time, people know it and stories like that should be told. Mm -hmm. And yet it keeps it alive. I, I would be on the side of it being a good thing. Yeah, yeah, same here. You know, I think you're always going to have people that look to exploit tragedy and and stories no different than anything else. And those people aren't great, but they exist. Mm -hmm. But like you said, overall, uh, I I would consider it a net positive as well that, 
you know, it gives people a community to be a part of and talk about. And, you know, there's people that genuinely care and are interested in learning these things. And I think that's awesome. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what we got for this one. Um, We'll have a lot more in the second episode. Um, We're going to, like we said, we're going to fill in some holes that we may have here, anything else we find that's interesting, and then just spend some time kind of humanizing it and giving giving a little agency to some of these people who are involved that um, I think sometimes don't have that. So I think that'll be great. I'm I'm excited for it. Yeah, me too. I'm very excited about that. So yes, with with that note, uh, if we missed something, if we didn't talk about something here that you were hoping to hear about, don't freak out just yet. Wait to send that email. Wait to leave that angry comment or one star review. Wait till next week and then do all those things. Thanks for listening to another episode of Beyond the Breakers. We love hearing from listeners, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, there's a couple of ways you can do that. We're on Twitter at Beyond underscore Breakers. We're on Instagram at Beyond the Breakers Podcast. Our email is beyondthebreakerspod at gmail.com. And we do also have a Patreon set up for the show. That's patreon.com slash beyondthebreakers. Money from the Patreon just goes back into making the show, covers things like web hosting fees, research materials, the occasional hardware upgrade to keep the show sounding as good as possible. We appreciate all of the support in any way it comes. The simplest way to support the show is just to listen and share it with your friends. Other ways to support the show include leaving ratings and reviews. Ratings and reviews really help us. They help the show stay visible. They help more people find the show and they make us feel good. So any of those ways you can support the show is greatly appreciated. Until next time, take care.